welcome back to this film not rated a branch of the music city drive-in podcast network i'm curtis i'm eric and we are here to talk about the movies we saw this week with full spoilers and a twist on the podcast formula on this show there are winners and there are losers the loser is the person with the most points and you can get a point in one of two ways you can either state a subjective opinion as fact like uh back to the future is the best cinematic trilogy of all time or you can say something subjective and either take the point, like the Before Trilogy is one of the greatest cinematic trilogies of all time, in my opinion. Or you can have 67s to support the reason you formed your opinion using objective details, avoiding the buzzer, citing the nature by which it was made, the concepts of whether or not something reflects reality and whether or not that has a quantifiable merit on whether or not somebody would have something resonate with them. On uh, the impact it had with myself, justifying that I feel this way because of a personal experience that factually happened to me. You know, anything that would really work with you, although I feel like it's most likely that people would have more familiarity and a personal, you know, connection with the Back to the Future trilogy during formative periods when they were children. So statistically, it's more likely that they would have an attachment personally to that trilogy, giving a counter-argument. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... The big question of the show. Eric, what did you watch this week? Well, Kurt, it's funny you should ask that because I watched Back to the Future and the Before Trilogy. <laughs> really? So did I. Both trilogies. Yes. Mm. So, yes, we have a slightly more structured episode than we normally would. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to talk about this because there are a lot of cinematic trilogies and a lot of them have a lot of different points. Mm-hmm. But we have one that's very commercial that mm-hmm. was designed, you know, as a product, but that was designed based on the concept of someone working in the studio system that still had a personal point. Yep. And then we have someone who kind of works in the studio system and is kind of working on a personal project, but sort of freelance crafted something that feels way less restricted to time and a budget the way that you think of most Hollywood productions. Right. So, uh, where do we start with, uh, are we going to do like one, like one trilogy? At a time, or are we gonna like talk about the movies individually? Like, like we talk about Back to the Future, and then before Sunrise, and then Back to the Future Two, and then before Sunset, like that. I like that. Okay. Yes. So let's start with Back to the Future. This is a movie that I haven't seen that much. I think this is my third time watching it, and. Uh, what got me to watch it this time is I recently got the new 4K uh, restorations. But uh, watching it this time around, I've noticed that, uh, at least with Back to the Future 1, I-, I-, I noticed that the story revolves around like overcoming self-doubt. And the thing that made me start to think about this was after Marty and Jennifer have uh, gone to the school talent show au- audition and they're rejected, Marty goes into this conversation with Jennifer about how he doesn't want to send in a sample tape about with his band playing to a studio because he doesn't know if he can take that kind of rejection. And you go back into the past where Marty gets to meet his uh, his uh, dad and you get almost a very similar kind of conversation but with Marty playing the role of Jennifer and his dad playing the role of Marty. And the through line is George McFly gets the courage to talk to uh, the mom, and eventually you, you 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 get the kiss on on the dance floor, and Marty gets to play in front of a crowd, in in a band, and so like you get those that strict... they pay off at the same time. Yes, it, it and it, it it's it's a complete through line that looks like it's completely planned because it probably was. it is so structured. Yes, in this way, 
Robert Zemeckis, it's like there was a core idea that he and uh, one of the writers of the movie talks about found his parents' high school yearbook. Mm-hmm. And that that sense of what was their life like, that idea of going back and being able to see what life was like in their time, led to the inception of a script that was then highly structured around setups and payoffs and setups and payoffs. Yes. On getting tossed back to the past and needing to get back to the future. Right. And I I don't know what it is about the 80s and the iconography of characters like Indiana Jones and Marty and Doc and the DeLorean and, uh, you know, Star Wars and all of these franchises that had commercial, you know, recognizable things about them but and all about alan silvestri's score too these are all mm-hmm. reasons why i wanted to watch this movie and uh you know there are so many elements of story that are plot devices that are recommended for screenwriters there is a ticking clock on having to use the one lightning strike that they know in order to make it back in time and also a ticking clock again on marty not disappearing before his parents are able to recorrect the flow of time and um you know putting a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time there being a misunderstanding between characters um, it just feels like they had they knew a lot of rules mm-hmm. and they structured them around this core idea but that created this story that in and of itself is it, it, there are notable holes in the story that people point out okay like um uh the past that Marty went back to created a change in his future yes um and so he never returned in the timeline that he originally left. Right. And there should be another Marty in this future, as evidenced by Back to the Future 2, who's already there. Yeah. So there should be two hymns in the timeline he returned to. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 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 little things like this that people can point out through the movie, uh, and there usually isn't a lot of time travel screenplays, but the main reason why I watch Back to the Future is simply because... It's just a structured sense of adventure with a clear point, mm-hmm. with uh, something that I that resonates with me, and I think a lot of audiences personally. But that is a personal opinion. Yeah, that idea of like being able to explore the past and yeah. change things, and oh no, I have to change them back. I mean, so many movies have gone back to try to replicate this as right. a fact to point to and, it. And that's the thing that I kind of want to talk about here. I, I Did you used to watch these movies when you were a kid? I did. See, uh, I did not. The first time I watched these movies, I was in college. And, and even then, I think maybe after I, I was out of college. But like the I, I bought the movies solely on the reputation that they had and uh, got into them as like a 25, 26-year-old something. And the, the, because the effects are mostly practical and they don't do a whole lot of rotoscoping, the effects tend to hold up because it, it's 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 still it's actually, continue to have a sort of verisimilitude, like a feeling of reality to them, even if they're not real. Yes, we do not know the relationship between Doc and Marty. No, and for some reason around this time, audiences decided they didn't need to know. Yeah, just like high schooler is friends with an old mad, mad mad scientist, and everyone's okay with it. Except for the school principal. And there are several relationship dynamics that push questions like he replaced his father, his mother's attracted to him. You know, they explore all of these things that 
in and of themselves mm-hmm. don't necessarily seem family friendly, and yet it's shown to children like all the time. Yeah, partially because these like adult themes are only hinted at, and there's no really action taken on them. Yeah. So I don't know. There's something innocent about it because there's no negative, harsh, real world or or threatening consequences to what happens, and yet. Mm-hmm. Doc is gunned down by terrorists in the first 15 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yep. You know, it, it rides this line. I, I think part of the heightened reality of it and the iconography of it keeps you, you know, in a state of the opposite of suspending disbelief. Mm-hmm. It keeps you in a state of this is fun and consequenceless, even though the consequences are right there in front of you. Yes. And, and that's the interesting... Bleh, that's one thing about i used the crush phrase once mm-hmm. this, about this uh this movie is part of the appeal of it seems to be mm-hmm. that it's not real I th- I which think is so. the opposite yeah i believe of before sunrise before sunrise this is my first time watching a richard linklater film and i don't I wasn't too aware of how they went about producing the film. Like, from my understanding, it's, it's, there is a script, but it's mostly free flow as far as like dialogue goes. I you actually, know I believe it's created as they go. And that's why they're all three are created by this, this, as the screenwriters. Okay. Julie Delpy, mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke, the two leads of the movie. Yep. And Richard Linklater, the director. Collaborate. They admit that these are basically vacations. Mm hmm. But they attempt to explore something true about the nature of falling in love, making mm-hmm. choices about who you're romantically interested in, mm-hmm. and ultimately how what love is and how to commit to it. And they do it across the backdrops of romantic settings, but these movies, the concepts right. that are about romance that they discuss. Mm-hmm. But by and large, you back to the future... There's what a movie is about, and there's what a movie is about. And I've always kind of wanted to talk about this. Okay. A movie is about what the story is. Yeah. So Back to the Future is about trying to get back to the future. Uh, Before Sunrise is about two people falling in love. Essentially, yeah. But what a image is about Mm -hmm. is what is on the image. So for the most part, movies are about people talking. Yes. Before Sunrise is a movie... About two people talking. Yeah. That's... And attempting to romance each mm-hmm. other. Yeah, about 90% of the movie is like straight dialogue. Whereas some of Back to the Future is about driving a car. Some of Back to the Future is about punching someone and running and chasing an action. Right. I, I feel like it's important to distinguish that movies can be defined in these two ways. Because what an image is about is both what you intend a story to tell mm-hmm. and what you are seeing. So there's a dissonance when someone right. tries to tell you a story about romance, mm-hmm. and every time something romantic happens, you cut to the next scene that they're just talking. Right, and you know, with 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 before sun, which is not what happens in before sunrise. Right, with with before sunrise, I I, I think the likability of the movie depends heavily on how you uh, take to the Ethan Hawke character and the Julie Delpy character because you get heavily involved in their life and their past history and if you don't like them as characters I, it's hard for me to see you liking the movie because the movie is solely about those two characters and their interaction with each other 
from what I understand, the inception of Before Sunrise, mm. the point was it was very free-flowing and sometimes ad-libbed. And there's there's this quote that floats around, and for the life of me, I don't know where it's sourced from. Um, Richard Linklater is running a camera, and he says, try and fall in love. Mm-hmm. And he just tried to capture it. Yeah. And they tried to be as genuine as possible. Yes. Like, there, there are segments of this movie where it's it's pretty much just a straight-on camera shot of, of Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy staring at each other. The camera do- doesn't move. It's locked in place. And it's it's just them walking or they're in a carriage. You're just focused in on the two characters. And uh, at some point, if, 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 if you can connect with these characters, you start to... I, think you start to feel the emotions that they feel. We'll just You start to feel the emotions that they feel. Yes. There are two scenes in that movie, actually three, actually four, that to me pin down the core of what makes me want to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is when they're in the record shop. And yeah. each one is trying to catch each other looking at the other one. Right. The second is when they are on a Ferris wheel. Mm -hmm. And there's a shift where the characters start to, in in a not metatextual way, admit that they are creating almost a romance movie among the two of them, even if there was no camera there. Mm -hmm. And it gets called out. Right. Then there is the pinball machine sequence. Where the two of them, while very aggressively slamming a gaming machine... Yes. (laughs) ...reveal gritty details about what their real life is like outside of the bubble that what they're talking about. And then there's the ultimate sequence of them uh, leading up to having sex. Yes. And it's like once they both feel like they understand what their situation is... There's a threshold where they decide whether or not to make this decision to have a, this romantic fling that hits this ultimate romantic passion. Yes. And so they touch base with it, commit to it, and it's beyond that. They're just staring at each other, stroking each mm-hmm. other's hair, desperately hoping to see each other again, trying to make plans to see each other mm-hmm. again. Uh, the, this, this film in the trilogy, its goal is to capture... The idealized version of what, I guess, love or romance is. Subjective. Go for it. 60 seconds. Um, the idea is it's, it's, it's... Icons that you would think of when you think of ideal romance? Right. What are they? Uh, love at first sight. So, like, mm. uh, you uh, get that with the uh, train shot. Uh, you uh, you uh, get a lot of flirtatious dialogue. Uh, not only that, the dialogue they're uh, talking about is strictly based around the idea of romance. Mm. And what they believe it is. Mm-hmm. Well, and then there's the actions that they take. I, I think a key scene to support yours is the wine. Yes. He he makes this gesture. I, I do not have the ability to pay you. I swear I will pay you later. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where he says, like, hey, you see, I'm with this girl. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, she's stealing wine glasses. <laughs> and... I'm with this girl, and I'm going to make this social gesture and say, like, if you can help me with this wine, I promise I'll pay. And the guy sees them on this date, like, they're in this moment, and he convinces him. And he hasn't quite told her he can't afford the wine, or he kind of has, and Mm. she's kind of stealing the glasses, and they're both on the same page. Mm. But he wants to have 
the icon of sharing wine together in a romantic setting. Right, right. Reality doesn't quite support it, but he acts in progress of it. Yes. I didn't see them until this week for the first time. Mm -hmm. And there are so many things that personally gutted me that it's really hard to talk about. Um, There's so much in these movies that I think their hope and their intent Mm -hmm. is that the concepts they talk about are universal enough or relatable enough that most couples are going to recognize the struggles they go through and the passages that they go through Mm -hmm. as something that happens in, in real romance. And it's not always reflective reflective of all reality. Yes. But even when it's not, it's almost like it could be. I don't know. You know, and so there's a very it's very hard to watch something objectively when there are things intentionally attempting to ping your subjective experiences and ask you to compare them. Yeah. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna transition before the sun rises and go back to the future part. George Lucas once said that if a trilogy is a story of three movies, then the middle section should be the darkest, the lowest point for your characters. Yes. And I feel like this, again, where the first movie showed a favor of structure to tell a story that was an idea. Yes. This tries to follow a familiar structure to carry forward an idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Two and three were made at the same time. Right. Of Back to the Future. And so two has setups that aren't all paid off in one movie. And I think there's a reason that in Family Guy, something, 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 Dark Side, mm-hmm. they draw a parallel and end The Empire Strikes Back with the letter that ends Back to the Future Part 2. Yeah. Because this is a movie where the characters attempt to make positive changes to save their future. Mm-hmm. And... End up at a very low point. Yes. That being said, the imagination in the set pieces, the increase in the budget, mm-hmm. the hoverboards, the repeated set pieces that parallel and function, mm-hmm. you know, to echo what happened before with different biffs of different generations and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But also the, the, the different Martys and the different Martys moms and like... There are certain unintentional revelations of person's personal preference in writing. Mm-hmm. Even when you're writing something that you feel like is cleaned up for Hollywood. Right. Um, you know, I don't know what the first movie says about the dude's relationship with his mother, but... I know that this one speaks a little bit to what... When you write in a script, Mm -hmm. what you feel like is evil and what you feel like is good... Yeah. You share something personal about yourself more than you make any kind of truthful remark on the world. And that's going to be important for talking about Before Sunset, too. Okay. With uh, Back to the Future uh, 2, Part 2, it's safe to say that there are quite a few uh, plot holes involved. One being the famous scene where old Biff goes back to the past to change the future and he somehow gets back to the same future that he left. Uh, a thing that I noticed this uh, second time around, uh, when Marty goes to the future with Doc, it's my belief that there shouldn't be another Marty there because there was no Marty to stay to, to, to grow old. That's the same Marty. Uh, kind of like how with uh, this new future that Marty's in, there should be two. two, two there should be two Martys. Mm-hmm. There, there's not. So, like, the rules of there time. There is a contradiction. Yes, the rules for time travel were never explicitly set in stone until 
part two. Yeah. You know, we learn at the end of part one, the the belief that is central to that movie mm-hmm. is that he changed his past, so he changed his future. Right. The immediate structural change they make for part two is that when you make a change in the past, you move to an adjacent timeline and move forward in that future. It's it's almost like a mini worlds theory going on almost. Yes. So by the rules of the second Back to the Future, Mm -hmm. it makes sense that there is a Marty in the future. Because whenever this adventure wraps up, Mm -hmm. he will have gone back to his original time in order to live and grow up. The error that I pointed out to you was that technically that means... Oh, I said error. I can't... So I'm saying something's bad here. (laughs) Looper, in 2012, tried to explore something that's very difficult to conceptualize to me. Okay. Which is, when you have someone who is you in the future, and you affect or manipulate yourself in the past, Mm -hmm. it should be actively distorting their experiences and their memory. Yeah. So, if you chop a person's hand off, that future them... Should not only have their hand chopped off, but it should be healed. Mm. And, or, maybe that hand chopping off caused a butterfly effect that made them not be able to work the same job, not have as good a health, die a couple years early, and they would just disappear. It's the butterfly effect not acknowledged. Yes. And, so, Marty, meeting Marty in the future, who has no memory that Marty from the past came to visit him. That is the plot hole. But by the rules of the first one, yes. The rules of the first one should be that when he moves to the future, he was gone for that period of time. So when he shows up in the future, be like, Marty, whoa, where have you been? Yeah. (laughs) And, um, so, but that's the thing is when you get, that's why I feel like sometimes there's, there's a, a, a barrier. And this is something I wanted to say. I feel like there's a barrier between the first and the second two Back to the Future movies. Okay. Where you have to take one as one story and two and three as another story that functions in a, an adjacent world. Okay. Like, if you just watch two and three in isolation, you will get a brief recap of the end of one. Yep. And you get a contained story that struggles with some of the consistency, but ultimately is about a character thinking long term and right. coming of age because of the way that doc acts in two compared to one where one of the things that doc mentions that he might do with in back to the future one is the direct is is exactly the thing that marty is going to do in back to the future two with the with with the sports almanac and all of a sudden even it's the exact same thing and then doc all, says i wonder what the who's winning the world series yes. for the last yeah and so in part one, and so Doc's uh, morals or or, or uh, rules on time travel have now shifted in a way that don't that that aren't consistent with Doc from the first one. Yes, um, and you know to be fair, it's completely fair that he learned off screen. It's possible, yeah. So Doc, yes, could have attempted to win off of the World Series, yeah, for months, and seeing how those like you know. 
won the money from that, put it in his investments, traveled forward to the future, tried to withdraw it from the bank, see if he could make bank doing this, saw a lot of catastrophe from it, went back, warned himself not to do it, set up a bunch of different timelines. This is why he knows better how the time travel lines work. All this stuff could have happened off screen. Ah. That's another thing. Everyone likes to point out a popular theory mm-hmm. uh, that Marty dies a lot in Back to the Future Part 2. Right. Specifically because of the one sequence where Biff is trying to run him over and at the last second, Doc saves him. Yeah. But we don't know how Doc knows where he was. Mm-hmm. But a pretty clear way that he would have found out is that's where they found the body. Right. And so, you know, yeah. we don't know. No. Um, there is a lot to unpack... But, for the most part, the reason I go back to watch it is to continue to spend time with the characters, Doc and Marty, Mm -hmm. and continue to explore the same sort of fantasy of Marty explored in, in Back to the Future who his parents really were and what he wanted to be when he grew up and taking the initiative to make change. Yes. Now that he has the willingness to act, what is he going to do with it? And what consequences is it going to have? Before Sunset is shorter. Yeah. Shot in a different style. Mm-hmm. And very procedural. Mm-hmm. They There's a book signing. Yes. She meets him. They go for a walk. A walk turns into coffee. They sit down for coffee. Mm-hmm. They get out, they walk. They get in a car, they drive. They get out, they walk. They get on a boat, they ride on the boat. They get off the boat, they get in a car, they drive to her place. They get out of her place, they go up to her place. Mm-hmm. They talk in her place, at the end. Yep. You know, there there is... Every action that they take is an action of not walking away. The whole thing was, is, was this real or not? Yeah. And what is real? What is love? One of the features of this particular movie is when you see uh, Ethan Hawke's character, he's married, he has a kid, and it's not until later on that you learn that this uh, love that they thought they had is on the rocks. They're not sure. He's, I, I know he's, he's not sure. What to do? I, he knows he wants to make himself happy, but he doesn't know if he wants to sacrifice his son's happiness for his own. And that's a struggle of what he's going with. At least something that he talks about mm-hmm. with uh, with uh, Julie De- uh, Adelpi's character. And then you get you get more of the baggage, I guess, with this with this movie because then then you get her side where she's talking about her past relationships and 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 how it seems to her that every time. She dates someone and then they break up. They find their true love the next with the next one they find, and so it's she compares it to they Which took all taken my love. For, by good luck, Chuck. Yeah, I'm kidding. It's true though. <laughs> yes, and so she takes so she sees it as they took all my love and did it and and, and used it for someone else or something along those lines. I may well, be quoting it wrong. She there's a break. Okay, again talking about movies on two levels. Mm-hmm. This movie is about. Two characters traveling and talking. But the story is halfway in between what this trilogy ends up becoming, in my opinion. Okay. You repeat 
the events of the first movie. Yeah. You meet someone in a romantic setting, but instead of trying to go for a romantic gesture, mm-hmm. they sit down for coffee and attempt to reconnect. They start in a place of attempting to have a civil, friendly relationship mm-hmm. and dance around whether or not they're going to have a romantic relationship. Right. And so we're in the first one, they are attempting to have a, a romantic relationship until they begin to crack at reality, mm-hmm. and that's what causes them to take the initiative to be together. Mm-hmm. And this one, they are trying to mask their feelings for one another with reality until the reality that they have feelings for one another cracks through. Okay. And that's Julie Delpy's moment where she admits to him that when she read his book, she did see truth in herself. She reads herself as this romantic person Mm -hmm. and feels like that's the last time she was like that, so she feels like she left that with him. And... Julie Delpy in these movies oh. is probably one of the main reasons why I, I, I would revisit it. I There's Ethan Hawke and there's Richard Linklater behind the camera, again, just exploring scenery mm-hmm. and working with the characters, trying to get them to explore their 30s and what it means to be in this stage in their life and the way the decisions are more complicated when you have responsibilities and so many things. But Julie Delpy has these seeds to her character from before sunrise Mm -hmm. about what she wants to do with her life. Right. And they don't seem to prioritize romance. And then in this movie, it's like a confession to her that she prioritizes romance. Not romance as in a relationship. Romance as in passion for music and for, you know, writing Mm -hmm. and his work and the things that she does. And she is... So expressive. She's so much more emotional in her performance in this one. Yeah. Whereas in the first one, she seems like she's trying to ground the situation where uh, Ethan Hawke is the one who's trying to elevate the romance and she's kind Mm. of, I'm going to cut the tension by talking in American accent and I'm going to, you know. So would you say there are situations that are are reversed where where Ethan Hawke's character is trying to keep it grounded and... Julie is, uh, what's, how did you say it? I, I feel like that she is asking for, like, these are objective, these are things that happen. She asks him to be honest about his relationship, mm-hmm. to be honest about whether or not he showed up. Mm-hmm. She flirts with not telling him the truth about it, then admits that she didn't show up when they promised. Mm-hmm. Every time she confesses something about how she feels, mm-hmm. It's very heightened and loud, and she's almost crying. Okay. And in the in Before Sunrise, mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke is more expressive and more open there in doing okay. this, while Julie Delpy it seems shy and flirtatious, and, and she sometimes gets passionate about certain subjects and talks mm-hmm. louder, but for the most part is a little more reserved. It's like their roles flip... Mm. But the intention of their roles is the same. Okay. Where Ethan Hawke's character is trying to use the idealized facade Mm -hmm. and Julie Delpy is pushing for the emotional truth that will help her feel comfortable. Okay. And so at first it's, are you really going to love me or is this just a romantic story you're going to tell? And in the second it's, 
do you really, are you really content with your life or do you love me? Right. And I think there's a moment where they're both questioning if true love is actually a thing. Like they're, they're, they're both not sure because mm-hmm. they both had their, they, they, they both had their agreement. Uh, it's revealed that, uh, Ethan Hawke's character did go, but due to a family emergency, Julie Delby's character couldn't make it. Yeah. And then the emotions kind of pour out in the car ride back to Julie Delby's apartment. And it's, it's revealed that, uh, they may not have known what they were doing. They were in, just in their mid-20s at, at the time. They, I think that at one point they, they called themselves kids back then. Mm. Um, so they're wondering if, if, if those emotions they felt back then are, are real. And then they, they go in, they go into this deep conversation and, and it ends in Julie Delby's apartment where the closing line I, th- I think kind of like the closing line is 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 Julie Delby doing it's a dance? It's really hard to not qualify. It, yes, this last line. But what is it? It's you're gonna miss your plane. And Ethan Hawke just sits there and nods. I think he says, "I know." Uh, oh, really? I'm not sure. It's possible. Like either yes, way, it, it's almost a nonverbal confession between the two of them that this is where they want to be. It's it's the same. Sort of climax as before sunrise, mm-hmm. where the two of them, once they are both content with what they've said, they take an action, mm-hmm. and then they non-verbally yeah. spend time with one another and acknowledge one another's feelings. Right. Only thing you don't have here, because you don't have a question, is what's going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. The answer is right there. They're going to stay together. Yeah. And back to the Old West for Back <laughs> to the Future Part 3. Right. Biggest contrast. And this is what was so fascinating to me about this is... I said fascinating, not interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that good or bad? Do I get we'll, a point we'll, for that? We'll let it it's slide. a two. It's a two. I was going to say we'll let it slide this time, but okay. No. Two out of three for the, the, the crutch phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, We have gone full Hollywood. Yeah. Um, there is a joke in Back to the Future Part 1 that Marty is called Calvin because his underwear says Calvin Klein. Mm-hmm. By the time we get to the Back to the Future Part 3, he's calling himself Clint Eastwood <laughs> and attempting to dress this, this way. And they you continue to have these reflections and payoffs so that things continually mirror themselves and keep going and oh. keep going. Like, he's... Pointed out for how odd he dresses in Back to the Future Part 1. He's pointed out for how odd he dresses in Back to the Future Part 3. Yep. He, he, they, you continually see that different ancestors are all played by the same actors. Yep. Another significant thing to note is uh, from Back to the Future Part 2 on, Crispin Glover is not the actor playing Crispin Glover. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, that's... That's a story a for choice. another time. That's a choice. Um... At this point, though, mm-hmm. in Back to the Future Part 3, you once again are going to have a show-off with Biff. Yep. And the idea is is much more into the concept of, I, I feel, the butterfly effect. How far do you need to reach? Mm-hmm. And how far do you need to care about the consequences of your actions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's if they beat... Buffalo Biff, or whatever his name was from... Uh, Mad Dog. Mad Dog. You know, this has far-reaching consequences on his lineage Mm -hmm. and what kind of personality traits these people have. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you kill Mad Dog, 
Oh yeah. What happens? You know? Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, the butterfly effect seems to like like where the other two films kind of ignore the butterfly effect. Well the first one really didn't, because what 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 the first film and this part film Part three feels one hundred percent like a second half of part two. Well yeah. The reference of Are You Chicken? The uh, setup and payoff of there's going to be a car race right. when you're an adult, you know. I, I still think there's there's a good bit of similarity between part three and part one because both of these 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 movies take place with Marty going into the past, and both these movies have a picture that Marty is constantly um, uh, using to see whether whether or not the future is changing based on the actions that they take in the past. So with with uh, Back to the Future one, it's a picture of him and his uh, siblings. And back to the future three, it's a picture of Doc's gravestone, his a, his yes. a, his a tombstone, and so every action that Marty takes, they'll they'll look at the tombstone picture and see what's going on. There's there, there, there's a point where a name on the on, on the tombstone is gone, but the tombstone exists, and, and that familiarity that that we circle almost in a cyclone around the same elements mm-hmm. in order to build ideas, yeah, is one of the reasons why. Some people like to point to things like Back to the Future, just write it off as commercial entertainment, mm. and not necessarily give it artistic credit. And yet, you basically take the same elements and bubble them around, and suddenly you have one movie mm-hmm. that talks about whether or not you should take a chance. Mm-hmm. You have a second movie that's about what are the consequences of your actions. And you have a third movie that completely draws the line under you don't always have to act to do the right thing. Yes. Three and one almost feel at odds with one another. If you don't take action, you might miss a chance. But if you take action at the wrong time and you don't restrain yourself... I think restraint is the key word. Restraint at the proper time and restraint at the improper time. Well, and let me put it another way. Uh... Part one is act. Part two is accept the consequences when you act. Mm-hmm. And part three is make sure your actions are for your own reasons. Yes. Oh, yeah. That I, I think that works. And because you get a setup in part two about Marty getting into a car crash that ruins his music career. And that's paid off in part three. And you, you, you get a lot of that. Mad Dog Tannen is introduced in part two as one of... Uh, Biff's uh, a- ancestors, and they, they, it's there, and he's revealed in part three as the character that shoots Doc in the back over a matter of $80. But here's the thing is, you have these ideas that have some weight to them about morality and choice and free will, and yet you also have a time travel train. Yes. <laughs> and to me, that's that's the distinction between escapism mm-hmm. and... Uh, I guess you could call it art film. Mm-hmm. I think someone recently, I don't remember who it was, once described, if you make a movie and it does not challenge your worldview mm-hmm. and it makes you feel safe, it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. If you make a movie and it challenges your worldview and forces you to, to, to think, think and take challenge, it's art. Right. So go out and make art. And remember to entertain people. Right. And I do want to point this out because it's something that I like. It's just been forming in my head. Back to the Future is one and two clearly Marty's stories. I would say, uh, Back to the Future three is more of Doc Brown's story. I would think. 
it's and that's part of the reason why I feel like maybe the critical reception isn't as high as it is because the stakes aren't directly applied to Marty. Mm-mm. It's the first half of the story the stakes are directly applied to Marty and the second half of this story he is a supportive player mm-hmm. in another story. Yeah. Uh Doc Brown takes more of a active role than 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 he has in past ones. He is that uh, he finds a love interest back in 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 the past, one that was supposed to fall off a cliff mm-hmm. and die, and uh, because he saved her, that it, 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 it's... or did he, Doc Brown? Yes, because I mean, you know, he takes her on the train. They take off on the train, mm. but what are they going to report? Ah, she was last seen headed for the cliff. This is true. Okay, right, right. Okay, there are some things like that. There are some. Tied loopholes. Yes. Or tied loops. Sorry, tied loops. But this is the first time that I think Doc has, like, had, like, a moral or, or, or logical uh, conflict that he had to deal with himself. And it, it, it's it's not... Provided ex- he didn't have to save Marty from death. Right. And it, it, it's not an external one. It, for, for for him, it's it's very much internal, where, where he's, he's, he's conflicted with his romantic feelings for uh, Clara, mm-hmm. and... His rational mind for not messing with the space-time continuum. And... As one of your favorite YouTubers would respond. Mm -hmm. And yet, Curtis, it seems like it would be a really huge struggle for him to consider the moral implications of taking someone. Is it going to be a hard decision for him? Actually, it's going to be super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Nothing happens. (laughs) Nothing happens. Uh, That... What what ultimately would make you want to come back to watch Back to the Future Part Three? Would you ever watch it on its own? Not on its own. That's that's. I think that's the only thing that I have. Well, it could be though because you get a nice recap of Part Two right in front of Part Three, and it just goes back into a its... nice recap. Oh shit, Damn son! It. Oh man, how far we make it in this episode before you got a point? A long time. Yeah, but no, we we get a recap of Part Two. That leads into part three, just kind of like how at the end of part two, you get a preview of what part three is going to be. So they, it, mm. it's, 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 it's almost a bookend. And so you you don't necessarily have to see part two to understand what's going on in part three. Just like you don't have to see part one, see what's going on in part two. They they, they well, all act that kind of as their own self-contained stories. But and again, I think there's sort of an argument to be made about how the rules are so different from part one to part two that, mm. you know, that's the case. But, you know, part three... I just, I don't know if I would ever watch this over something like Blazing Saddles. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if I would ever watch this for time travel over Back to the Future Part 1. Yeah. I, I I don't know what I would get out of this movie that I can't get stronger from something else. Right. The future. Ooh, stronger. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Uh, typ- I'm dead. I'm dead. <laughs> Typically, when I watch Back to the Future 3, it's because I've just watched Back to the F- Future 2. And I want that story to, like, have an ending. And yet, to me, it doesn't feel like that story has an ending. No. It does. But it's almost like the emotional vibe that I am landing on at the end of part two. Mm -hmm. I have to wait an entire movie to have resolved in smaller parts towards the end. Right, okay. And then we see this car race. You know, the, the way that the conflict is with Biff in part two. Mm-hmm. Mad Dog is the result of that. Yeah. You know, it, it just doesn't 
And, and again, this is subjective. And I'm not, you know, so I'm not going to say it. Mad Dog is the result of that. Mm-hmm. I'll just leave that. Okay. Um, the ultimate point of Back to the Future 3 is the future isn't set. The future is what you make of it. Now we're on to Before Midnight, which is the, it's the least experimental and the most structured of the Before Trilogy, where... There are so many choices that they make visually. Mm-hmm. They, there were nine-year gaps between each of these movies. Yeah. And they came back at different times and eras in their lives. They're in their 40s now. They're exploring being in their 40s. They're exploring how love feels when you've committed to a long-term relationship and, you know, the quote-unquote spark is gone. Right. Um... But again, it's the story of this couple Uh attempting to fall in love. Yep. But where one was pushing romance and checking with reality, Mm -hmm. and two was pushing reality but checking with romance, Mm -hmm. this is pushing what romance really is, Mm -hmm. checking with... That's not romance, we're done. Yeah. And yet for the first time... Actually, not for the first time. What happens at the end of each one of these movies is... After you've considered the second half... Mm -hmm. They meet in the middle and the first half is sort of what they want. Okay. They give in to their romance and they're together intimately at the end of one. Mm -hmm. After they've checked with reality. In two... They give in to romance with one another, but they accept the consequences of what he's going to... You're going to miss your flight. Yes. Right? So, the last thing they say is a reminder to you that he's making a choice to break from responsibilities. Yeah. In this one, they attempt to dismiss love, Uh and at the last second, it's sort of roped in like, this work... Uh Is the work that love is. Yeah. It's... I believe that's the intended... Right. It's... It's, uh... It's it's unfiltered, I think is a good way to say it. Well, all of them are technically unfiltered. Well... um, Because these characters aren't really in a long-term relationship. So they're the closest that they get... To being unfiltered in all of them because they're they're trying to genuinely convey falling in love. They're trying to genuinely convey, you know, the passion that would make them make that choice and the woulda, coulda, shoulda and the hopes of the future. Mm-hmm. And here, they're trying to genuinely convey the intimacy of people who have been here, which is why you have nudity for the first time. Mm-hmm. You see them at their most intimate and there was no nudity in Before Sunrise. And neither in Before Sunset. But it's sort of a romantic idea for them to be together yeah you know and they always tease and talk about sex they talk about sex the most i think and before sunset yes and but here they're sexually active Mm -hmm. and vulnerable yeah at least julie delpy is ethan hawk never quite i think has to expose himself vulnerably in this way ethan hawk in this movie in the first movie, he felt like the guy who was trying to... He always feels like he's the guy who's trying to talk about what reality is. Yeah. In the second one, he was feigning that he's not as romantic as he is, and then he, mm. you know, is. Yeah. But in this one, 
it's that elevated sense of emotion that Julie Delpy has in, in Sunset mm-hmm. is skyrocketed. Yeah. She's she's like an an, an expo- she's exposed. Yes. And and so she's sensitive and this this sets off in 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 a way that is a thrust forward from what is in the first two movies. Right. Um, in the first part I said how uh, before sunrise is about uh, I guess like the idealistic idea of what romance and love is. Mm-hmm. This is I think even according to the director, the disillusionment of of that romance where it you're not in the honeymoon phase anymore. It, it the like you said before that 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 spark is gone. All you're left with are, are like raw emotions, and like with every other movie, this coalesces into one big scene that starts off very romantic and spills into what looks to be their worst fight and a relationship ending fight factually yes she attempts to end the relationship and it it ends with ethan hawk's character giving a lecture or not really well not a lecture it it, it, comes in and he attempts to make a romantic gesture yeah and it's it's him like one of the lines that he says that I, i think rings true is this is love. It's not pretty. It's not always perfect, but it's real. But I think sometimes what he's talking about is something that they attempt to capture, and I'm not a hundred percent sure if they do. Mm-hmm. I can't speak to this, so I can't. I can't tell. If, and even if they didn't, I don't know if that would be good or bad. You know, there's an overarching thing like that they talked about in a special feature we watch afterwards. Mm-hmm. That regardless of what happens after this, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's a part of life. Yes. And so it no longer becomes about did they break up or did they not break up. No. Because if they did or they didn't, they handled it in a way. And I, when he says this is love, mm-hmm. I feel like he's referring to everything that happened in that movie. Hmm. Everything they've shared and everything they fought, the highs and the lows. Yeah. And to me, that speaks to things that they never really talked about before in terms of what love can be, mm-hmm. which is sh- really sharing your life with somebody. Yes. Some of the things that can inspire it is, you know, we saw them in isolation on a fling. Mm-hmm. And then in Before Sunset, we saw them when they were first meeting before they've had the chance to share much of anything. Right. In this movie, it's almost like he's, you know, the conflict over what is happening with their son, mm-hmm. with his son. With his son. And then their children. And whether or not her her life is going to be spent in America with him or, or where she wants to right. go with her dream job. All of these things, they're going to share. Yeah. But they don't ever quite discuss... The romantic ideas that are behind that. No, they don't. Like, that's... He kind of... It's kind of an attempt at a bittersweet commentary that mm-hmm. even this, when we fight, mm-hmm. is love. Like, this this harsh, hard, gritty thing. Yeah. If we say that this is love, too, it might be a little bit of a downer for people, but... Yeah. You know, this is, too. You know what this movie is? 
What? The polar opposite. And yet, a weird mirror of Back to the Future Part 3. A little bit. Before Sunset explicitly sets up that these characters are finally going to be together. Right. And the emotion that you're left on is that they're going to explore what their life is like together. See, I was actually thinking think, think about this, like, I, I think before Sunrise is a good mirror to Back to the Future Part 1, because it's them take, like, at the end of the movie, it's them choosing to push forward. It's them choosing to take action in some way, which is kind of what you get with Back to the Future Part 1. Back to the Future Part 2, the consequences of that, and, you know, it's a different story. I don't really think Four Sunset and Back to the Future Part 2 Those Those work. don't, yeah, I, I don't think those mix too well. But what is similar mm-hmm. is the emotions of the third one do not necessarily give you what you want emotionally, or what it seems like you're supposed to want emotionally, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, based on the second one. Okay. And... So if you were to watch these straight in a row, mm-hmm. you're like, Back to the Future Part 2, Doc's alive, I thought he was dead, we're going to go save him. Okay, it's going to take a while. Yep. Before midnight, oh man, they're finally together, we're going to see what their life is like. Kind of. I mean, I, I, they they wanted a happily ever after, I guess, the, I guess this is... Oh. <laughs> so, but the thing is... So there's escapist, there's a time travel train. Mm -hmm. And the key, for those of you listeners who made it that far, this movie ends with a time machine. It does. Ethan Hawke proposes that their hotel room is a time machine. He reminds her of the first movie. Mm -hmm. He claims that he is who he was from the first movie. And he claims that he has come from the future to 80 from 80 year old her to give her a message. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to put himself on the table and she's rejecting him with the same sort of smack of reality that she's put forward in this movie and in the first one and at different points. Mm-hmm. She's always been the one, even if the reality is that they should be romantic, to smack down the romantic idea with reality. Yeah. And he is continuing to put forth these romantic ideals. And he tries one more time again. And it's so... Here's... It almost looks key. like he's failed in in an extent. Because at, at, there there's a point where it's, he drops the act and he says, I give up. And at that point... It's in her hands. It's in her hands. And she's been in his arms. Mm-hmm. And then in the second one, she's danced for him. And in the third one... All she does is... She goes along. This time, she's herself Mm -hmm. in a way that she's been before. Mm. You know, she's vulnerable with him for the first time in the first movie. Mm -hmm. And she decides to agree to be with him, but doesn't commit to that because she didn't come to meet him. Right. And the second one, at the end, she has this talent, this art that she doesn't really want to get into... But she decides to go a little outside of her comfort zone and dance for him. Uh In this one, she makes a joke that she's made earlier in the movie. Uh And she goes back to sort of being herself. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is what they choose to echo that they're gonna be together. You know, or or, or leave it ambiguous. Like, you know, but... The, I, the last line of this movie is very ambiguous because it, it, the way 
just like kind of like how the last line in, in before sunset is kind of like a, a silent confirmation that they of that what happens. Yeah. yeah, this one is not so. This one what isn't. Is this one is. It could go e- either way. Where Ethan Hawke is saying that, that uh, it's going to be the night where you have the best. It's going to be the best sex you've you've, you've ever had. And the, the way the, the 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 line ends is well, must be one hell of a night we're about to have. Mm-hmm. So what that tells me is it all depends on the night. Yep. Absolutely. But what did you just say a little bit ago about what the possible purpose of Back to the Future Part 3 was? The future is what you make of it. I wish I was so much more intellectual than this. Mm. I wish I was well-researched. I Mm -hmm. wish I was an academic sometimes so that I could pull (laughs) from this. I feel like this is the kind of thing where I'm going to end up Googling something and realize somebody's been talking about this for years. And I think I've discovered something new and Mm. like it's whatever. But... The Before Trilogy mm-hmm. and the Back to the Future Trilogy parallel one another and speak to two sides of film and movie making. Yeah. You know, the commercial and the uh, for the sake of art sides of things. And they reflect one another and they speak so much to our nature, mm-hmm. why we are who we are, what we want out of life, what the choices are that we make. And... I can watch one mm-hmm. if I feel like I want to escape, and I can watch the other if I feel like I need a reality check. There's a certain comfort in both, I would say. Like, so to, to clarify, with Back to the Future, you have that escapist of of, of reality, and it's just, it's kind of like a warm blanket of uh, movies where you're kind of like going back to this uh, time of what. Uh, entertainment of what movies used to be like you go like like you think of the adventures of, of robin hood which was a which was a a a, a great a movie a blockbuster movie at at the time it's 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 an adventure uh swashbuckling mo- uh, movie and so you kind of have that with back to the future from from the 80s and then mm-hmm. what the- a swinging blockbuster before midnight was <laughs> yes right? then you have the before trilogy which it Depending is its on own form of escapism. It is. Way. It depends. They are vacations to what is it? Italy and then France and then Greece and then Greece. And with Back to the Future, you don't have to be in any particular mood to have to, to watch those. With Bat with with the with the Before trilogy, I get a different emotion, which with each one of those movies, and depending on the mood that I'm in, will determine which one I want to watch. To have the same warm blanket cover me that Back to the Future does. So if any part of what we said tonight gives you a warm and fuzzy feeling inside, well, we really appreciate you listening because the both of us feel like we were on to something and it paid off in a way that I'm really, really proud of. So uh, thank you listeners out there. I hope that this, you know, has any worth to you. Mm-hmm. And if it does... Let us know. You can reach me at filmcriticscritic at gmail.com. Give us any suggestions for movies you'd like coverage of or anything you'd like to talk about. Um, I am Eric. You can find me at High Contrast FLM on Twitter. I'm Curtis. You can find me at 90sGamer407 on Twitter and on Twitch by the handle of Merrick underscore Tainments. And remember, we are a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network, so head on over to themusiccitydrivein.com for more entertainment on a, in a variety of different kinds of forms of, I don't know, I gotta go back to the future and fix this ending. Music.